John chapter 9, the first seven verses. We're going to read these uh, verses. You can follow along as I read from John 9, uh, 1 through 7. Uh, John writes, as he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. Let's uh, ask God to open up our eyes to this scripture this morning. Lord, uh, thank you that we have your word that can be the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path and to guide us um, through uh, the challenging days in which we are living in. And uh, we pray that you would um, just bless us this morning as we look into your word. May your spirit be our teacher and may um, we see some truths this morning that will change our lives and encourage our hearts. Lord, we pray for many folks that are um, traveling this week and uh, give them journey mercies. Lord, we pray for the folks in, in Texas and Oklahoma that are um, suffering because of the, the cold weather and the burst pipes and, uh, Lord, just uh, difficult, difficult circumstances. And we pray you're a blessing upon them and encourage them and uh, Lord, may it be an opportunity to uh, to show Christ's love to these people that are hurting. Lord, we pray for our nation today and our country. Uh, Lord, we pray for our president and vice president. Lord, may they seek wisdom from you, and we'll give you the praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have been uh, in the Gospel of John for probably uh, seven or eight weeks now, maybe a little longer than that. And we're in chapter 9, there's 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, so we're approaching the halfway point, and we're going to bite off the entire chapter 9 this morning. If you look at that outline, you're like, uh, boy, he's going to, we're going to be here for a long time, but I'm going to, I'm going to zip through it, and uh, as uh, Dr. Lutzer always used to say, um, my job is to speak, your job is to listen, and hopefully we both finish at the same time, so... Uh, that would be the goal at around 11 o'clock. So that's that's where we're headed. So John chapter 9, the title, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. Um, I think it's a question we all wrestle with, whether we speak it or it's an unspoken question. When we look around the world and we see things that happen uh, to people that we consider good people, we, we tend to ask that, that question. It's really the title of a book, a uh, best-selling book in 1981 by a fellow uh, by the name of Rabbi Harold Kushner. Uh, he wrote a book with that title, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? He wrote it after their uh, son at the age of three was diagnosed with a serious disease that would mean that he probably would not live past his teen years. And Rabbi Kushner grappled with that question and he wrote this book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Here's, here's a paragraph from the book. He writes, The misfortunes of good people 
are not only a problem to the people who suffer and to their families, they are a problem to everyone who wants to believe in a just, fair, and livable world. They inevitably raise questions about the goodness and kindness and even the existence of God. When misfortune happens in the life of a person that we consider evil or bad, we say, well, they kind of deserve that. But when misfortune hits good people, it, it raises up this question and, and uh, of, of why. I wrestled with that question as a, as a freshman in, in college when my mom, who was a pastor's wife, was diagnosed with breast cancer and eventually turned into brain cancer and died at the age of 50, just a few years after her only sister of 48 had died of cancer. And and as a young 18-year-old college student, you try to, to wrestle through all of that. Why do bad things happen to good people? I've wrestled with that this week. Is On uh, uh, Wednesday, I had a conversation with an acquaintance of ours. I'm not connected to our church. And she began to pour her heart out to me. She was telling me that her husband, 51 years old, has been diagnosed with ALS disease. And here was a fellow that was a, as a, as a firefighter, was on the dive team, and now she's seen the, the, gen, the, the progressive downward path of his, of his health. And she says, I'm scared. And I had the opportunity just to try to encourage her and pray with her. Recently, we've been in communication with a family that we know from Zionsville, Indiana. Uh, they're a wonderful Christian family, and we've known them for a number of years. They have a married daughter and a six-year-old daughter. In the last three months, the husband ended up in the hospital with pancreatitis, and, and that led to a series of very serious medical health issues. And, and now um, there's um, not much hope for this, this uh, individual, and we've been trying to encourage his, his wife in, in prayer and encouragement, and, and now she's facing uh, parenting alone. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, our passage this morning doesn't fully answer the question, but I think it begins to hint at it a little bit in this, this piece of the puzzle. And we have to understand there are many things we'll never fully understand until we get to heaven. And uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in part, but then we will know fully. And so at some point in time, I think we'll see the big picture. But uh, let's look at John chapter 9 and uh, just a little bit of context. Remember, uh, John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said what? I am the light of the world. One of the seven I am statements that he makes. <clears throat> well, here in John chapter 9, he heals a blind man. And here's the, here's the context. It says in verse 1, as he, Jesus, went along. So Jesus and his disciples are still in Jerusalem. They were there in John chapter 7 because they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And so they're still in Jerusalem and they're walking the streets of Jerusalem. And as they're walking the streets of Jerusalem, Jesus sees a man uh, probably begging on the streets. A man that's never had physical eyesight. Jesus saw a man born blind from birth. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but out of the five senses, hearing, sight, taste, touch, smell, 
the one I would fear losing, losing the most would be sight. I don't know if you ever thought, thought about that, but can, can you imagine what it would be like to, to live in a world of darkness where you're not able to see at all? Uh, my first introduction to a blind person was a, a, a freshman at college, again, at Cedarville University, um, about a thousand students, so it was a very small college at that time. It's about 4,000 now. Um, but we had a, a young lady uh, in our, our class, and her name was April Jenkins, and April was blind. And uh, she had a seen eye dog, and somehow through her blindness, I don't know how she did it, but... <clears throat> She was able to navigate the campus and she was able to navigate uh, the classes and she eventually graduated from Cedarville University with, without sight. Well, here's a, here's a man that has been born blind. The precious gift of sight. We take it for granted, don't we? To see the sunrise and the sunset. To see the beauty, uh, as much as sometimes we get tired of the snow, the beauty of the snow. And uh, this last uh, week with the fresh snow and the sun shining and you see the um, the snow just glistening like diamonds in the snow, uh, not to be able to enjoy any of that. Imagine the pain in this family when they realized that their young baby boy could not see and probably would never see. And so Jesus sees a man born blind. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to look at very quickly, there's 17 questions in John chapter 9. And we're going to run through them very, very quickly. But uh, that's how I've kind of outlined this passage. Here's question number one. <clears throat> it's the disciples to Jesus. Verse 2. His disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples want to know, here's a man, blind from birth, and in their thinking, there has to be a, a, a blame, there has to be a, a cause here, and they want to know, is it the man's sin, or is it his parents' sin that he can't see? Now we know that all sin and sickness is a result of the fall. Romans 5.12 says, sin came into the world by one man, and death through sin. So someday the curse is going to be reversed. There's going to be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness. But we live in a fallen world where there is sin and sickness. We are all going to die unless Jesus comes again someday. But not every sin is a direct cause of sin in a person's life. That was the theology of Job's friends. Remember in the Old Testament, Job and the horrific things that happened to Job, and then his three friends came along, and for a week they just kind of sat with him, but when they began to talk, um, they, they should have kept quiet because their theology was all, all wrong. Here's what they said to Job. Consider now, who being innocent ever perished? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. They started to tell Job, the reason you're going through all this is because there's some secret sin in your life, Job, and God's punishing you for it. That, that was their theology. Well, Jesus corrects that in verse 3. 
Notice Jesus' answer. It's really the, the key verse in the whole text. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. It's a false choice, a false dichotomy. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this isn't a result of, of the man's sin, born blind. He, he would have had to commit a sin in his mother's womb, although the Jewish theology thought that could happen. This is not a result of the sin of his parents. This has happened so that God's works could be displayed in him. So that this man's life could be a trophy of God's grace and mercy in his life. Well, Jesus goes on to perform miracle number six of the eight in the Gospel of John. And Jesus heals this man born blind. And uh, we read it in our in our scripture reading, but let's let's look at it again. How did Jesus do this? And it's interesting when you study the miracles of Jesus is that sometimes he just proclaims a miracle. The 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 storm on the Sea of Galilee. He says, "Peace be still." Uh, the man that we looked at a couple of weeks ago that was was paralyzed and had not walked for thirty eight years. He simply said, "Take up your mat and walk." But here Jesus does it a little differently. What does he do? Well, we, we already read it. He spits on the ground. He makes mud with saliva and he puts it on the man's eyes. He makes some, some mud packs and he puts it on this man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. Now, why did Jesus have him do that? I mean, he could have just said, snapped his fingers and said, be healed or whatever proclamation he wanted to make. And so just a little bit of speculation here of what Jesus might have been doing. We discover from John 9, verse 14, to no surprise, John tells us, Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. It's kind of a pattern through the, the Gospels that Jesus does these miracles on the Sabbath and it's right in the face of the religious leaders of the day. And so when Jesus spit on the ground and made mud, in the eyes of the religious leaders, if you've been with us through the Gospel of John, that is considered forbidden work. <laughs> and I think that Jesus maybe might have done this just to fly in the face of the religious leaders that... that um, all through the Gospel of John, they, they butted heads. Secondly, some commentators think that Jesus put these mud packs on this man's eyes because he wanted to test his face. He, he, he wanted him to, to have a part in this miracle. He, had a, he wanted to test his faith and his obedience. And so he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he obeys and he comes back seeing for the very first time in his life. Well, that leads us to question number two. There's only 16 more to go. <laughs> We're going to keep plowing ahead. Question number two. It's the neighbor's question. Uh, verses 8 and 9. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him uh, begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Others said, No, he only looks like him, but he himself insists, I'm the man. 
they're like, is this the guy that was this blind man that we've seen for years sitting at this corner begging? And some said he was, some said he wasn't. And the man says, yep, this is me. I, I'm the one. I, I can see now. And so um, that leads us to some other questions in verses uh, 10 through 12. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is the man, they asked him. Where is this man that healed you? I don't know. Isn't it interesting in the flow of how this happened that when Jesus told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he, and he um, did and he could see, by that time Jesus was gone. He's still never seen Jesus. Now, he he will meet him later in the text, or at least not meet him, but see him for the first time. But right now, he's never seen Jesus. And so so they're asking him, and that leads to the, uh, the next section, verse 13. They bring him to the Pharisees. And here's where this controversy boils up again. You know, they want to know what happened. They want to know... Uh, how he was healed, and and the interrogation begins. And so uh, they begin to question this man. Verse 15, Therefore the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Isn't it sad that through all these miracles that happen on the Sabbath, that all the Pharisees could see was that Jesus broke their written law, not God's law, their law, their rules, their regulations. They, they couldn't rejoice in, in the goodness and the celebration of a man who has never seen and Jesus healed him. Others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the man born blind, What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man said, he's a prophet. Now I want you to notice the progression of who Jesus is in the mind of this man that was healed. First of all, he said in verse 11, the man they called Jesus. Now he's calling him a prophet. And we're going to see uh, by the end of the, uh, the chapter that he really comes to know who Jesus truly is. Verse 18, they still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until he sent for his man's parents. So now they're bringing mom and dad into the picture. If they would have known the Old Testament, if they would have known their own scriptures, they would have known that one of the prophecies about the Messiah is that the Messiah would heal the blind. That's, that's in Isaiah chapter 42, um, last part of verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison. So all through Scripture, there's, there's some prophecies that one, one of the things the Messiah is going to do is he's, he's going to give sight to the blind. And here the, the Pharisees now bring in um, mom and dad and they bring uh, interrogate them with a series of questions. Is this your son? Verse 19, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? 
The passage continues, we know he's our son, we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, or how his eyes were opened, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Ask him, they already had, they, they, they didn't want to believe him. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Now, to be put out of the synagogue, if you acknowledge Jesus as your Messiah, that was that was like being excommunicated from, from your faith, from your church. The synagogue was the center of religious and social life in a community. And so, uh, to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah uh, meant you were excommunicated from, from the synagogue. And so, they're a little hesitant. They're, they're fearful of these religious leaders. Well, that leads us to um, uh, questions 13 and 14 already. The man born blind to the Pharisees. So, uh, they, they bring him back. The Pharisees bring him back. And so they begin to interrogate him. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. They're, 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 they're trying to get him to say uh, exactly what happened. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already. <laughs> uh. Here's the parents, the children. Now, I've told you, told you once. I've told you a thousand times. I've already told you. I've already told you this story. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Then he gets a little sarcastic with them. Do you want to become his disciples too? And that leads to a heated exchange now between, between this man and the religious leaders. Then they hurl insults at him. You are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses, verse 28. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Jesus has already told him many times. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. This is, this is, they're answering the disciples' question. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And the Pharisees said, this is your fault, buddy. You were steeped in sin at, at, at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. That means they threw him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. So here's the blind man's response. And remember, there's a progression here. Uh, first of all, he says uh, he's a man, verse 12. And then in verse 17, he says he's a prophet. And then later on, verse 33, he says he's from God. We're going to say, see in just a minute, he takes one more step and acknowledges who Jesus really is. So he's been thrown out of the synagogue for just telling the truth. And now we see the compassion of Jesus. Jesus goes and finds him. That's the next uh, section here, the last section here. And it's question number 15. 
Jesus to the man born blind. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, the compassion of Jesus, he goes and he, he finds this man. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now the phrase Son of Man means the Messiah. Do you believe that I am the Messiah? He's asking. Verse 36. Who is he, sir? Who is the Messiah? Listen to these words. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. You're looking at him. You are seeing the Messiah with your own eyes. You are speaking with the Messiah. Notice his response. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So the blind man went from saying Jesus is a man to Jesus is a prophet to Jesus is from God. And at the end of the chapter, he says, You are the Son of Man. You are the Messiah. And he is down on his knees worshiping Jesus. Now that leaves one more question in the flow of the text here. And it says, some of the Pharisees, verse 40, uh, here's question number 17. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard Jesus say this and asked... um, I need to read verse 39 before we get there. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And the Pharisees asked, What, are we blind too? Last question in the text. And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Well, that's just a quick overview of John chapter 9, and uh, I did a lot of reading there, but I wanted you to get the kind of the flow of the text and all those questions, and uh, Jesus performs miracle number 6 of, of 8 in the Gospel of John. And uh, just very quickly this morning, we'll, we'll finish up by looking at um, five timeless truths from John chapter 9. So um, how can we apply um, what we just looked at uh, to our everyday life and uh, We'll look at, at five of these. And here's, here's the first one. The first one is this, that Jesus sees, knows, and cares about our needs. Jesus sees, knows, and cares about our needs. Verse 1, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. I don't know how you see people and interact with people. But as all through the Gospels, we see that Jesus had compassion for people. It would have been much easier for Jesus just to walk by that blind man who'd been there for years and years begging on the streets. But no, Jesus saw him. Even though that man could not see Jesus, Jesus saw him. And uh, that that is uh, um, an important truth because... Um, I know my tendency, especially with those that might have um, disabilities, maybe a blind person, maybe a severely handicapped person, maybe somebody in, the, in a wheelchair, my tendency is to overlook them. 
And, and, and I understand sometimes our hesitancy in reaching out to people like that because sometimes it's like, man, I, I really don't know what to say. And uh, I've heard um, uh, people with disabilities and Johnny and friends, what a great ministry to people that struggle with disabilities. But oftentimes those people say, uh, we feel overlooked in life. And uh, Jesus did not overlook this man. Jesus saw this man. Jesus sees and knows and cares about our needs. Matthew chapter 6, the, the Sermon on, on the Mount, and, and Jesus is talking about um, you know, seeking first God's kingdom and, and don't worry about food and shelter and, and clothing. He says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. First uh, Peter 5.7, casting all your care upon Him. Why? He cares for you. And so, uh, Jesus sees and Jesus knows and He cares for our needs. Well, there's a second truth that we need to learn and it's that spiritual blindness is far worse than physical blindness. Spiritual blindness is far worse than spiritual blindness. The man in John 9 was in physical darkness the religious leaders were in what? Spiritual darkness. John chapter 8. You know, last week we read John 8.29 where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. He says in John um, 8.24 rather, He says, if you do not believe that I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. And so here's the, here's the religious leaders. They had, they had the Messiah right before them. They could, they could see him. They, they saw him perform miracles. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, they attributed the works of Jesus to the power of Satan. They were spiritually blinded. In fact, in Matthew 23, 24, when Jesus pronounces seven woes on the religious leaders, he calls them, you are blind guides. They were in spiritual darkness. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So Jesus, hey, there's a spiritual battle going on. And, and why can't, why can't people see who Jesus is? It's because Satan has blinded their eyes. They're spiritually blind. That's why the Bible in Ephesians talks about when we're come to faith in Christ, we go from what darkness to light. It was Fanny Crosby who wrote many of the hymns in our hymn book and who was also blind. Fanny Crosby made this statement, if I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. How sad for so many people in our world to see the beauty of the created world and not know the Creator. 
And so, uh, spiritual blindness is far worse than being physically blind. Well, number three, truth number three from John chapter nine is that pain has a purpose. Pain has a purpose. Uh, I mentioned probably the key verse in this whole text in John chapter nine is verse three. When the disciples asked that first question, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus' response was this, neither, but this happened so that, okay, there's a, there's a purpose in this blindness. As we already mentioned, the purpose is that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that this man can what? Give testimony to what God has done in his life. And so one of the things that helps us when we're in pain and when we're suffering, and um, whether it's physically or emotionally, is that God has a purpose for that. God doesn't waste any pain in our life. The whole theme of the book of 1 Peter, written to, to suffering Christians who, who because of persecution, were, were dispersed, and, and Nero was, was on the throne, and, and Christians were dying, and Peter writes, the theme, pain with a purpose. There, there, there's a purpose to all of this. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.10, And the God of all grace who's called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a while, will himself restore you and what? Make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Oh, the, the, the pain in our life, no pain, no gain, and it strengthens our walk with God. Job said, but he, God, knows the way I, I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Pain has a purpose. Somebody has once said, only God can turn a mess into a message, a test into a testimony, a trial into a triumph, and a victim into victory. Whatever pain you're feeling in your life right now, God's got a purpose in it. And uh, oftentimes we don't understand, but um, God is sovereign and God has a purpose in all of our pain. Uh, number four, timeless truth number four, faith and obedience are a prerequisite to God's blessing. So we see that faith and obedience is a prerequisite to God's blessing. So when Jesus put those mud packs on the eyes of the man born blind, what did he tell him? Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. It's right there in Jerusalem. Now that man had a choice, didn't he? He, he, he could have said, you know, this is ridiculous, Jesus. Why are you, you're supposed to help me see, not cover my eyes. But the man obeyed. I remember the story of Nahum in the Old Testament when, when, uh, uh, the message was, you know, go, go to the, go to the river and, and, and dip seven times in the river, Naaman, and you'll be healed. And he didn't want to do it. He was, he was mad about that. And finally they convinced him to go. And when he obeyed, he was healed. And so the same principle is in this story. What would have happened if, if the blind man would have said, no, thank you? But the blessing came because of what? His faith and his obedience. And so, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man what? Went 
and washed, and he came home seen for the very first time. So James chapter 1, James writes, Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, they will what? Be blessed in what they do. So the blessing comes from what? Comes from obedience to God and His Word. And how many times perhaps in our life do we pray and ask for God's blessing and, and that's only going to come as what? As we follow the principles of His Word. Because faith and obedience produces blessing in our lives. Lastly, and we're done, number five from this story. Worship should be our regular response, ultimate response to Jesus. That worship should be our our response to who Jesus is. And I love how this story ends in John chapter 9. After after the, the man that was healed is is excommunicated, thrown out of the synagogue. Jesus goes and finds him. And Jesus has this exchange with him. And he says, do you believe I am the, 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 the Son of Man? And he says, tell me who he is. And he says, you're talking to him. And he says, I believe. But notice his response. Verse 38, then the man said, Lord, I believe. And it says, then he worshipped him. He worshipped him. And so what is our response to, to Jesus? Um, especially as a person who's come from darkness to light, is that we need to worship Him. It's really the ultimate priority that should be in our life. It's the only appropriate response to Christ. Whenever we see an example of Scripture of someone coming face to face with Christ, they are on their knees, flat on before Him, worshiping Him. We read the book of Revelation and we see all of these scenes in heaven around the throne and, and what's happening. It's, it's continuous worship and the angels are surrounding the throne and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the reason why we are here this morning. It is to worship Him. Psalm 29.2, the psalmist writes, Give unto the Lord glory do His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Jesus said that He's looking for true worshipers, people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus isn't, God isn't looking for uh, large numbers this morning. He's looking at our heart and He's wanting to find a heart that is worshiping Him. There's a prayer that was written by one of the Puritans talks about the priority of worship and uh, I'm just going to read it this morning as we as we begin to close here's here's the prayer glorious god it is the flame of my life to worship you the crown and glory of my soul to adore you heavenly pleasure to approach you give me by the power of your spirit to help me worship now that I may forget the world be brought into fullness of life be refreshed comforted and blessed Let me live holy to my Savior, free from distractions, from hindrances to the pursuit of the narrow way. I am pardoned through the blood of Jesus. Give me a new sense of it. 
Continue to pardon me by it, and may I come every day to the fountain, and every day be washed anew, that I may worship you always in spirit and in truth. Westminster Shorter Catechism has 107 questions. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism written in 1647 is this, what is the chief purpose of man? And the answer to that question in the catechism is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why do bad things happen to good people? There's a lot of, I I really can't fully answer that question. But I do know that whatever happens in your life has happened by the permissive, sovereign hand of a loving God. And He's allowed it to happen so that people can look at your life and see how God has blessed you and how God works through pain to bring glory to Him. Let's pray together. Lord, what a remarkable story of your um, love and compassion for the importance of one person. And Lord, thank you that you didn't just walk by that man that was in need, but you saw him. You saw his physical need. And even beyond that, in a greater way, you saw his spiritual need. Thank you in the progression of the story that this blind man not only received physical sight, but that he received spiritual sight. That he came to find out that Jesus was more than a man. He was more than a prophet. He was more than a person sent from God. He was and is the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the light of the world. Lord, I pray that as we think about our lives and as we journey through this life and experience sometimes pain and hardship and difficulty, as we we look around and we, Lord, we all have stories to tell about people that we know that that are suffering and we sometimes wonder why. Lord, help us to realize that you have a divine purpose. You have a plan for our lives that is greater than our plan and is that God himself, would be glorified uh, through his work in us. And so, Lord, may we uh, may that truth encourage our hearts today, we pray. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.